Let us now turn to our Lord in prayer. We give you thanks, our great God, that we come before you, not as outsiders, not as those who must try to, to earn your hearing, but as your, your sons and your daughters, because you sent your son to die for us. We now have been made your children. And you sent your son, not when we had already earned your favor, but while we were sinners, indeed, as your word says, that while we were your enemies, that is the love that you have shown to us. And it's the love that our Lord Jesus has shown to us, that he would not hold on to his position in glory as something to be grasped, but he gave it up to come down to save his people. That is such love that he has shown. We give you thanks for the love of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit, the third person of God, would deign to, to enter into us, to make our bodies your very temple, to awaken us, that we might hear the gospel, that we might believe it and repent of our sins. Such love as this that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has shown to us, and we gladly, we gladly celebrate it. Our Father, we must confess that oftentimes we live as though we are poor beggars, that we have earned nothing in your sight, and that our Lord Jesus has not done that work of earning it for us. And therefore, we must keep striving, trying to, to follow the law, trying to use our wits, trying to depend upon other means to make it in this world, to enter into our inheritance. And therefore, oftentimes that we have transgressed your law by doing so, we have lied. We have tried to deceive you and deceive even ourselves. That we have broken your commandments in one form or another as we sought to just win our own gain. We confess these things. And all the more when we give thanks to you that your forgiveness depends not on how how sorry we happen to feel today and whether or not we remember to ask forgiveness of, of each and every sin and, and how we will do tomorrow, but that we can rest. We can rest in the work of our Lord Jesus. We give you thanks for him. It is in that light and that spirit that we bring before you our petitions and, and again, knowing that you hear us. We pray for a world in which there is much darkness and pray that the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, would break through the darkness of this world, break through the darkness of family and friends, those whom we love yet do not know you. Pray that that light would shine in us, that through us, as they hear us, as they observe us, might see the light of the gospel. We thank you for those who have left their own homes uh, to go into the world, into different cultures, learn different languages, to be in areas where they would not have been comfortable, 
all the more then to share that light of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would answer their prayers, that they would bear fruit from their labors, that because they went forth, there were those who were outside of your kingdom but now have entered in. We pray for so much of the, of the needs of the world and of our country and, and our communities. We thank Father, on uh, this day, which uh, marks many years ago the attacks at Pearl Harbor. And it reminds us of those who, who gave their lives, risked their lives uh, for fighting for our freedoms. We pray for those who are in harm's way even now. Pray for their protection. Pray for their peace. Pray for their salvation. Pray that you may bring them home safely. We mourn with the families of those who, of the hostages whose lives were lost in the rescue attempt, and we pray for your comfort, your peace to be upon them, and upon many others who have lost loved ones that do not make the news, yet whose lives are very dear. We pray that all the more that you would use us for the family and friends that we know to be, uh, to be the arms of comfort uh, for others who are grieving. Father, we do celebrate with those who are receiving great blessings. Think of the two new homeowners today, this afternoon, receiving their homes through Habitat for Humanity. And we pray for your blessings upon them. And pray for them as they seek to honor you in their new homes. And we thank you for the men and women who have made this possible in the hearts that you have given to them uh, to care, to, to provide such practical help. We think of our own Lord, of his parents who cannot find shelter. And yet here you have provided shelter uh, for mothers at such a time as this. We pray for this very worship service, that we will honor you, that we will, by your spirit, hear your word that is proclaimed. By your spirit, receive the sacrament that will speak to us again of the gospel of Christ. That you will lift us up, encourage us, and feed our faith through both the word and the sacrament. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for our scripture reading, we're looking at uh, Philippians 2, and uh, you uh, can use your Bibles. You'll also find the uh, text um, in the insert, and I'm going to just read two of the verses. We'll be going through all of them as we make our way through the message. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 7. Let us hear the word of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Well, last week we uh, considered what the phrase born under woman, born under the law signified. And we're looking at passages in this Advent season that speak specifically of Christ being born. 
Now, in the context of Galatians, when we're looking at the, that phrase, what we understood is that we who are held in bondage under the law because of our sins, we could only be redeemed by a Savior who lived in our flesh and who lived under the same burdens as we, that is, under the law. And because he did so, he freed us from that bondage to having to fulfill the law in order to be saved. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing, to the same, writing now to the Philippian church. And again, he speaks of Christ being born, this time being born in the likeness of men. And just as in the Galatians passage, Paul is referring by this phrase, Christ's incarnation, okay, his taking on our flesh. Now, this time, however... He is not presenting what Jesus accomplished for us in the flesh so much as the model that he provided for us by taking on the flesh. Now look with me, and we're going to look beginning at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, and if you're using the insert, uh, the first verse is there. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is a very clear statement, isn't it? The, the believers are to be humble. They're to care for the welfare of others without selfish motivation. And this is standard Christian teaching. But our question this morning, and for our context here, is why did, why did Paul bring it up to this church? What is it about the Philippians? And there's some uh, indication here throughout, the, throughout his letter that the church is struggling in this area of showing proper humility. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 15, he makes reference to some in the church who preach Christ from envy, and rivalry. They were, they were jealous of Paul. And Paul was in prison, and they took that opportunity to try, to, I guess, to win more followers. In chapter 3, verse 2, he mentions some of the same people that were in the Galatians church, or type of people. They were those who were trying to follow the Jewish law, saying you had to be circumcised in order uh, to be saved. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, he makes reference to former church members who had walked away from the faith altogether. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 2, which is probably what he actually has in mind here, there are two women, apparently two pillars of the church, who are at odds with one another. Now, the whole tone of Paul's letter to the Philippians reveals Reveals his love for the people, his love for the, for the church as a whole. It's a very warm letter. Now, you set aside the law keepers, in which he actually has some pretty harsh things to say, and those who were faithless, people who were endangering the very faith of the believers, you kind of put them aside, and Paul is commending everyone else's efforts to follow Christ. Even so, they're susceptible to having their feelings hurt, their feelings hurt due to pride. Again, there are those preachers who their pride have been taking a hit, no doubt because Paul had greater respect in the church, 
They think now that he's in prison. They can take this opportunity to maybe say a few little slighting remarks about Paul while they're preaching the gospel. And then the two women, their names are Euodia and Syndicate. Well, what is going on there? We're, we're not actually told. Something has separated them. It's pretty clear. It's well known in the church. But it's something that must not have been of great importance. Because Paul honors them. He honors both of them for their, their work with him for the gospel. He doesn't even bring up what the subject is. So perhaps we can assume that someone said something. That hurt the other one's feelings and the other one let the other person know how they felt. Whatever it is, they are two notable people in the church and they're clearly at odds with each other. So what Paul is doing, he's writing to the Philippians, he's exhorting the church members to be unified, be unified in their gospel work. And the the key verse, probably the one that really expresses the theme of the letter, is in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you note those terms of unity there? One spirit, one mind, side by side. Unity in the church is essential to promoting the gospel and withstanding opposition. And having said that, though, unity is difficult to achieve. I mean, we can be unified in what the gospel entails. We know what the gospel is. We can agree to that. We can be unified over our mission to promote the gospel. Jesus said, go out and make disciples. We got that. But there's a, as an old expression puts it, the devil is in the details. And there is more truth in that phrase than whoever originated it is intended. Because the problem is not that the details are so complicated, but that the devil literally uses those details to create dissension, rivalry, hurt feelings, misunderstandings, etc., etc. That's where it all happens. And the result is that instead of a, a church that is standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, we have a church here that is in danger of simply becoming a collection of rivals. So what was Paul's antidote for the church? Well, humility. A humility that is more than the the simple attitude of not thinking too much of oneself. It is a humility that counts others as actually being more significant. And that's a lot to swallow. I mean, it's one thing to say, look, I'm I'm no better than anyone else. That's another thing to say everybody else is better than I. And you have to ask, I mean, really, can such an attitude actually be adopted? Well, Paul turns to our Lord to model what such an attitude is. And so in verses 5 and 6, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, as you know, we're moving into the mystery of the incarnation. And if we were using the text, let's say the text was, what does the incarnation mean? Then I would take a lot more time in this text kind of opening up what the different Greek words uh, mean. And if you're using different translations, like the NIV or the King James, you'll note already the varying translations that come up, particularly in verses 6 and 7. But we're not going to go there. Our goal is to get at the lesson that Paul is teaching the Philippian believers. And it's a lesson that he's using the incarnation as a model for this lesson in humility. So we're going to move straight to what Paul's point is. And that's what all of the different translations are taking us to. And first of all, it is this. That though Christ Jesus was truly God, okay, as the second person of the Godhead, he's, this, he is fully divine, he is God, he was not so fixated on his status, you know, holding on to it, grasping on to it, that he would not let it go in order to follow his Father's will. Jesus spoke of this a couple of times in John chapter 4, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Or in chapter 6, verse 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And our Lord was willing to do anything to do his father's will as the next verse indicates, verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's look at these words. For emptied himself. If you've got the King James, you'll have read that he made himself of no reputation. Or if you have the NIV, it's made himself nothing. I actually think these two versions get it a little bit closer in my version of the ESV. And what is being said here is that as God the Son in glory, here we have Christ up there. He's robed in majesty. He's he's exalted as the, the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he lets that go. What was he like in that glory? Well, John describes it or gives us a glimpse of it in Revelation 1, verses 14 16. He's confronted with, with Christ in his glory, and he says, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, that's, our, that's Christ, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And that's why John fell on his face before him. Well, God the Son put aside all that glory. He stepped down as the king, and he takes the form of a servant, as was prophesied in Isaiah. Isaiah, speaking for God, behold my servant, 
whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Now that is one step of humility. But the son goes even further. For we are told that he's not simply a servant. He is born in the likeness of men. He who is fully divine, who is pure spirit. He became fully man, taking on human flesh. You think about this. He who is eternal, meaning there's no beginning, no end, submits himself to being conceived. He who is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere, that there's no place that he is not there fully, confines himself in a young mother's womb. Such was the humility that our Lord possessed. But there is even more in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now it's one thing for a king to step down from his throne to lead his army into battle against invaders. He's being a true servant for his kingdom. It's a further step for him to take on the same humble form of his soldiers. And he endures the same conditions as they. But it is beyond the way of any king to yield his life for his people, even for his soldiers, so that they might be spared. This is the humbling work of the king of glory. He was worshipped by the angels. He, He lived in poverty. And though there might be a few episodes, you know, in the Gospels of his being honored, for the most part, he was rejected by his own people who did not even recognize him. The king, our king, took on the form of a lowly servant so that he might serve the very people he created. The eternal, glorious one took on the form of a lowly servant so that he might march to his ignoble death on a cross. He was born in the likeness of men so that he might die for men and women. And this is one passage that's very clear to understand its lesson. This example of humility is the same humility we are told to possess toward one another. We're to count others as more significant, as better than ourselves. We are to possess a sacrificial humility. We're to look out for the interests of others. Now, this counting others as better... What Paul is saying here is that this is the essential element of the Christian form of humility. It is what distinguishes Christian humility from the common form that is accepted in the world. I mean, most people, most people recognize the virtue of humility. And by that, they understand that we should not think ourselves higher than others, you know, kind of just who we are, kind of in another plane. I mean, Everyone will say, after all, we're only, we're only human. Okay? We may have gifts that are superior, but those gifts don't make us qualitatively better than others. 
But Christian humility treats others and their interests as though they are actually more important. Because that is how Christ regarded us. And here we have with Christ, we have God the Son who is higher than us. Okay? He is infinitely more significant than we are. His interests are far higher than our own, and yet he died for us. Who then among us, who is not deserving of our humble service? Christ died for his enemies. Who then in the church body should we exclude from placing ahead of us? And understand, the context here is of a church body. Okay? Paul's teaching this to the church. The problem with humility is happening inside that church. And so I have to ask, as a minister of the word, is there anyone in this church who has offended you? Anyone in this church who has wounded your pride? Are there any divisions that keep the church from promoting the gospel together? Is the devil in the details of how the church functions? Well, here's the solution. Again, I'll read it again in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. What Paul is saying here is with this attitude that real healing takes place, that real unity is achieved, that the body of Christ becomes like its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, anytime I, I, I look at these things, the tough part about preaching these things is... You know, the Lord is, is convicting the, the preacher, too. And so I have to ask, can such an attitude actually be attained? Okay. Well, we need to look to Christ Jesus again. How did he do it? Well, the first thing that he did is a lesson for us is to keep before us who we're really serving. Okay. Now, you're told to count others better than yourself. How do you do that? You do that by understanding who it is you are truly serving. You are serving God. Jesus became a servant of God. Now, it's true, yes, he served others. He said, you know, Son of Man came not to be served, but to, but to serve. But even in his service of others, he was doing it as a servant of his Father. It was to his Father that he became obedient unto death. Our Lord Jesus Christ delighted in doing the will of his Father. Now, you might find it hard to be humble before your brothers or sisters, but surely you can be humble before God and before your Lord as you in humility serve others. Now, the second thing we can learn from our Lord is that we serve in humility for the good that it accomplishes. Jesus did not take on humility for humility's sake. Humility is not just kind of a, a demeanor to wear. I just need to be kind of like a humble person. It's a positive attitude to bear 
in order to accomplish good. See, Christ accomplished our salvation through his humility. That's the good that he did. Now, we're to promote the well-being of others and of the church through humility as well. We are to promote the gospel of salvation through our humility. So we need to know who we're serving. We need to realize that humility is actually to accomplish good. And then this third one, the third one is the hardest one, maybe to grasp. We need to keep before us the end result, and that is glory. Hebrews 12.2 says this of Jesus, that for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ kept his eyes upon the goal, upon the result. You know, athletes will go through all sorts of pain, tedium, even humility, to attain the glory of a gold medal. Will we not humbly serve when we have a reward that is much greater than a medal hanging around our neck? And we know that Jesus received his reward. That passage in Hebrews goes on to, no, I'm sorry, in Philippians, doesn't close with humility. It closes with glory. Look with me in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, our Lord humbled himself even unto shameful death But he did not remain under death. He rose. But he did not merely rise out of death. He ascended on high. And he did not merely return to his heavenly home. He returned, if possible, to even greater glory. It was his action that was accomplished in humility that led to his exaltation. And so, as Revelation reveals, even now is being sung of him, as said in Revelation 5.12, in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, our religion does not end in humility. Humility is just the bridge to glory. And try to understand this, glory even for ourselves. I'd be thinking I would be speaking blasphemy if it were not in Scripture. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So whatever slight, whatever trial of humility you face, understand that it is working to purify your faith 
so that it will result for you praise and glory and honor when Christ returns. It was in humility that Christ was born in the likeness of men so that we might someday reflect the likeness of our Lord. He released his grasp of glory so that we might enter into glory. It is along the the road of humility that he now leads us to this end. Will we not gladly follow him? Oh, we give you praise, our Lord Jesus Christ. You had all of glory. You, the the second person of the the Godhead, you who were praised and and filled with glory and adoration by all the angels about you, you left it all, came into a dark world that would not recognize you, that despised you, that even killed you. And what was the end result? It was glory for you. Even greater exaltation. And how is it our, it could be, our Lord? It would have been enough to know that simply that we're saved, that we're no longer condemned. But you raise us up. You're giving us an inheritance of glory itself. Oh, how wondrous you are. How wondrous is this humility. And may we ourselves... Reflect that same humility here in this life. We look to someday reflect your very glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.